One year, I ran across an internet advertisement by a company called Design Crafters. They market a line of Christmas cards called Classy Christmas Cards. Here's a description of the products they sell. These classy greeting cards express Christmas in many elegant ways. They are more expensive than most other holiday cards, but there's a good reason for it. These beautifully exquisite greeting cards definitely stand out in a crowd. Many of the cards are layered. Many have cutouts and bows and ribbons. Many have gold or silver, heavy embossing. If you want to look extravagant, these exquisite cards are for you. I read that and thought, what a contrast between classy Christmas cards and the first Christmas. Trust me, there was nothing classy or exquisite about the smelly stable where Jesus was born. Or the saliva-stained feed trough where they laid His little body. Or the barnyard rags they wrapped around Him. Or the grimy shepherds to whom the angels appeared. Or even the road-weary wise guys who paid a later visit. There was no gold embossing anywhere on that first Christmas. To the casual observer, there was nothing elegant about Joseph or Mary or the scene of Jesus' birth. Ironically, classy cards now celebrate a humble event. In comparison to Jesus' throne in heaven, there was nothing on earth that he would have considered classy. The road that Jesus traveled from heaven to earth was a long and steep and dangerous descent. Our Savior plunged headfirst into our muck and mire and mess. It reminds me of a fellow and his buddies who visited a barbecue house up in North Georgia. Very few things will get men to get in a car and drive for an hour. But you got to understand, this was all-you-can-eat rib night. That'll do it. And it didn't take long for a mound of gnawed bones and dirty napkins to get piled high. Long after they should have, these fellows admitted that they'd had enough. They paid their bill and they started to leave, but the driver couldn't find his car keys. He looked in his pockets, nothing but lint. He walked out and he looked in the window of the car, hoping they were still in the ignition. Nada. Suddenly it hit him. (laughs) When he had sat down to eat, He had laid his keys out on his tray. And evidently the keys had gotten covered with napkins and were still on the tray when he emptied it out into the wastebasket. Tragically, this man's car keys were at the bottom of all-you-can-eat rib night. It would have been a long walk home, and neither of his friends wanted to hail a very expensive cab ride There was only one thing to do. Dive in. For the next 15 minutes, this desperate searcher fished through rib bones and spit up barbecue sauce and baked beans and half-eaten corn on the cobs and slushy cold slaw and pools of backwashed iced tea and gobs of saliva-soaked napkins. Do you want to hear more? No. He fished through all that until he found his car keys. 
When that man pulled his arm out of the bottomless pit, it was coated with a thick layer of trash can slime. And yet this is what Jesus did for us on that first Christmas. Mankind was lost in a slime called sin. And rather than call someone else to bail us out or to drive home without us, Jesus dove into our filthy fallen world. In Christ, God reached down on that first Christmas morning and picked what was lost out of the trash. I say this with all due respect, but our God is a dumpster diving God. He is. Jesus loves sinners like you and me, and He refuses to leave us at the bottom of the can. Oh, nobody likes to stick their hand into an ocean of scraps and slobber and spit. Along with a set of car keys, there's no telling what you might find. Here's the truth. It took great faith and courage for Jesus to leave a blissful heaven and dive into our dumpster. G.K. Chesterton, he writes this, Alone of all creeds, Christianity has added courage to the virtues of the Creator. God could have stayed put. He created a perfect world that we defiled, that we defaced. The Creator didn't have to enter our madness, but enter it He did. You know, usually when people read the Christmas narrative, they turn in their Bibles to Matthew or to Luke. But the opening act of the Christmas story is actually found here in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 5 through 9 records the conversation that Jesus had with the Father on the day He left heaven and entered our world. The Bible says of Jesus' departure, Therefore, Hebrews 10 verse 5, Therefore, when He came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then Jesus said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus was born a man on a mission. You know, when the Lord said His goodbyes in heaven, He had an understanding of what awaited Him on earth. He knew that the wages of sin had always been death. For centuries, Jesus gazed down from His lofty perch in heaven and He watched those Jewish priests take their sharp knives and slit the throats of one innocent lamb after another. You see, God is spirit. And spirit has no blood. Spirit has no flesh. A spirit neither cuts nor bruises nor bleeds. But Jesus saw the blood flow and He imagined what it would be like for Him to bleed. As we read, a body was prepared for Him. You see, from day one, bleeding was in Jesus' future. Cold steel would open the tender skin of the manger baby. By the time Jesus entered the world, God had tired of all the patchwork sacrifices. The bloods of bulls and lambs and goats could only patch us up, not make us new. 
At best, the Old Testament sacrifices earned us a parole, but it took a sinless sacrifice to grant God's permanent pardon. And God's answer? A body made of tissue and vulnerable to tearing was prepared for His Son. A body that would bleed. As in America, Christmas in Japan has become a huge commercial success. Japanese shop and they give gifts. And yet few folks there observe the significance of the holiday. One Christmas, an American reporter was in Tokyo doing people on the street style interviews. He asked one young woman, what is the meaning of Christmas? She started laughing. She didn't really know. When the interviewer pressed her for an answer, the lady finally said, isn't that the day Jesus died? Well, obviously the lady's answer revealed her ignorance, but in a sense, that Japanese woman was exactly right. For we know from our text that on the day Jesus left heaven, He knew that one day cold pointed nails would pierce the newborn flesh He now occupied. Jesus understood that a body had been prepared for Him. And He knew why. And on the day of Jesus' departure from heaven, He made a bold declaration of faith. He said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God. Come what may, piercing steel, angry mobs, jealous Jews, even Roman crosses. Jesus was all about doing the Father's will. And Jesus had faith that once He had done the will of God, God in turn would raise Him up from the dead. And that faith was exhibited the very second Jesus stepped out of the halls of heaven to come to this earth. This is why I say, Christmas is about faith. In 1940, a man named Clarence Jordan opened up Koinonia Farm in Americus, Georgia. He wanted a place to display racial unity and peaceful cooperation. On Jordan's farm, white people and black people lived and labored together in harmony and equality. Later, a new partner, a man named Millard Fuller, would join Jordan at Koinonia Farm. After working there for several years, Fuller would go on to start Habitat for Humanity. You might recognize it. Well, in 1954, the Ku Klux Klan burned down every building on the farm. In the midst of the raid, Clarence heard a voice he recognized. Under one of the cowardly white hoods came the voice of a local newspaper reporter. The next day, that same reporter had the nerve to show back up to cover the story. He found Jordan in his fields planting seed. He said, I heard the awful news of your tragedy last night, and I came out here to cover the closing of your farm. Jordan just kept planting. The reporter continued to prod him for a response. Clarence just kept planting. Finally, the bigoted, cowardly reporter, he scoffed at Clarence Jordan. He says, you got two PhDs, and you put 14 years in this farm. Now there's nothing left. Just how successful do you think you've been? At that moment, Jordan stopped his planning and he confronted the man. He said, you just don't get it, do you? You don't understand us Christians. What we're about is not success, but faithfulness. This is what we learn from Jesus in the Christmas story. Our Lord was faithful. He stepped out of heaven to do the Father's will. 
You see, Christmas is about faith. A faith that doesn't worry about the immediate consequences, but instead focuses on God's will. True faith remains faithful to the task, committed to the calling. It believes that the will of God will ultimately prevail. Real faith can just as easily be called obedience. For faith and obedience go hand in hand. If I really trust God, I'll do what He says. It's really just that simple. This past week, I watched a YouTube video labeled, A Pastor Recounts the Stupidest Thing He's Ever Done. I don't really know why I was drawn to such a video. (laughs) But after all the stupid stuff I've done over the years, I, I just thought, well, at least I'm not the only one. Let's see what he did. In the video, Francis Chan, he tells his story. He says, one Sunday morning, he brought a small balloon and a BB gun onto the platform. He taped the balloon on the curtain at the far end of the stage. And then he asked the congregation how many people believed that he could shoot the balloon. He said about 70% of the crowd raised their hand. Then he said, how many of you will come on stage and hold the balloon while I shoot it out of your hand? Suddenly, his big crowd of believers shrunk to about 20. That's when Chan said, All right, who's willing to hold the balloon in their teeth while I take the shot? Only one man dared to hold the balloon in his teeth. The guy came up on stage, clutched the balloon, bit down on the end of it. Chan stood on the other side of the stage. He took aim. He said his original plan was to draw out the suspense as long as he could and then just stop and congratulate the man on his faith without ever firing his BB gun. But once he was in position, it just felt so comfortable up there on his shoulder that he just went ahead and pulled the trigger. And thankfully, he hit the balloon. Afterwards, though, he was swarmed with church staff and lawyers from the congregation who told him how stupid he'd been to put the whole church in such legal jeopardy. I actually thought about bringing my BB gun and a balloon onto the stage this morning, but then I recalled the title of the video, The Stupidest Thing I've Ever Done. And one of my New Year's resolutions this year is to avoid stupid. That sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Hey, but you can't deny the difference of attitude between the 70% who believed that Chan could shoot the balloon and the one guy who was willing to hold it in his teeth. There's a difference there. Oh, we all agree that we're saved and that we grow and that we please God by faith. But what constitutes true faith? Who are the true believers? The people who just sit around and talk about how much they trust God? Or the folks who act and serve and give and initiate and follow through and really live like they believe the things that God has said. Did you know this is why we have been prepared a body to do God's will? Romans 6 verse 13 tells us, Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Your members include include your mind and your arms and your legs and your hands and your mouth. Your body parts. 
I mean, you should really look at your hands. Just put them, put them up in your face. Look at your hands. Why are they there? I mean, where did they come from? I mean, where did these complex clutchers originate? They're a marvel of engineering. Your hands and your feet and your eyes and your ears and your legs and your lungs and your ligaments are not some evolutionary adaptation. God gave you and I a body to do His will. You know, it amazes me the number of body-shaping strategies on the market today. There's body by vi, where from what I'm told, you substitute delicious meals for nasty-tasting shakes. There's body by Boris and body by Roy, both exercise trainers. Then there's body by Roids and body by Laser, substitutes for exercise trainers. I remember the old TV ads for body by Jake. You remember Jake? Jake Steinfeld, he sold exercise equipment. Here's the latest body by t-shirt. Body by video games. Now that's going to get ugly quick. Everybody wants to shape your body, but your body belongs to God. It was given to you by God. And He wants to use your body for His purposes, and really for one purpose, and that's to do His will. You see, the true Christmas spirit is a spirit of obedience and faith. That's what we learned from a young Hebrew maiden named Mary. I mean, here's a 14, 15-year-old girl engaged to be married. Like most girls her age, her hopes and dreams are all mapped out. She and her Prince Charming are going to live happily ever after. That's when news breaks that irreversibly changes her life forever. An angel appears with words of wonder. He communicates a mysterious message. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Mary could have questioned God's will. She could have bucked at obedience, but she does neither. There's not the slightest squirm in Mary's response. As soon as God's will is revealed to her, she gives it all up. She lays it all down. She surrenders her little girl hopes and dreams and plans and ambitions to the good pleasure of God. You see, a body was prepared for Mary. And she unreservedly gave it to God. And here's the application for us. Are we as ready and as willing to let God reverse our course or upset our plan? Are we as dedicated to His will as we are to ours? What are we more committed to? God's will or our will? Most of you know this past year has been monumental in, in Kathy and I, in our lives, in our family. In nine months, Kathy and I have gone from zero grandkids to four grandkids in nine months. It's like, ready or not, here they come. I wasn't sure I was ready to be a grandpa. I'm still recovering from PPSD. That's post-parenting stress disorder. I haven't fully recovered from having four teenagers. In fact, sometimes I wake up in, a, in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, sort of reliving hard scenes from my children's teenage years. It's terrible. In fact, I have this reoccurring nightmare. Have you ever witnessed the meltdown that occurs 
when you tell a teenager that what he or she has planned for Friday night is not going to work out? Have you ever seen this? You tell that teenager, sorry, it's just not going to happen. You interfere with a teenager's Friday night plans. And it's like telling a normal, sane person that their right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness has been denied forever. I mean, that teenager is ready to throw tea in the harbor and powder his muskets. He wants to revolt from the family. But you know, i got to admit this morning, even as an adult, at times, I act like a teenager. Because I've got my plans. I've got plans that I've cast in stone. Friday night type plans. And God the Father comes to me and says, rather matter of fact, often without even offering an explanation, that my plans are just not going to happen. Sandy, it's just not going to work out. I discover that God has an alternative route for the path that I'm on. You see, seldom is my reaction like Mary's. Oh, I'll eventually surrender. But not until I've kicked and bucked and thrown a few cases of tea into the harbor. I revolt way too often. God help me. God help us. And there's a very simple reason why it's so hard for you and me to surrender our will to God. We lack faith. You see, Mary believed. She trusted God that His plan for her life was good and best. Even if it began with some pain and involved some major inconveniences. And Mary was a teenager, no less. Amazing! As a teenager, she accepted the detour to her plans as God's perfect will for her life. Are you willing to be putty in the potter's hand? Will you turn your family crest into a white flag and surrender your will to God? Will we say to our living Lord what Mary said? And you do remember what Mary said. I love her words. In Luke 1 verse 38, she responds to the angel's announcement. Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. I don't know if a more beautiful and a more challenging statement of faith has ever fallen from human lips. Let it be to me according to your word. See, this is faith. Faith enough to surrender. Faith enough to use your body to do God's will. Christmas is about faith. Christmas is a powerful lesson on faith. The faith of Jesus, the faith of Mary, and two, the faith of Joseph. I mean, this man had no way to conceptualize and understand the miracle that God had worked in the womb of his bride. But his faith went where logic failed. Joseph took Mary to be his wife, even though it meant living with a host of unanswered questions. Joseph is an amazing example of faith. He teaches us that just because we have questions that we can't answer, questions that God won't answer, that's no excuse to avoid doing the will of God. In the wake of the senseless school shooting in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, All the news stations brought in pastors and clergy. And they cornered them with the question, where is God in these kinds of tragedies? Of course, the bigger question would have been, why is it the only time we think of God is in the midst of tragedy? But that's a question for another time. 
Actually, the question being asked was, why did an omnipotent God not stop the shooting? He could have. And the best answer to that question is very unsatisfying. We don't know. God doesn't tell us why. Nor is He required to, by the way. I hope you've noticed God doesn't answer to us. It's us who answer to God. I did hear, though, one pastor who did make a helpful comment. He said, in the midst of tragedy, some folks turn their back and run from God. But many more people sense the tragedy as an opportunity to turn to God and run toward Him. And this was Joseph's reaction. He grasped God's will as fuzzy at best. And yet he believed and he ran toward God. Because of his faith, Mary's husband endured stares from a judgmental public. He bore the stigma of marrying an unwed mother. He had to flee to a foreign land at some point. I mean, Joseph's faith was tough and brave and selfless and sacrificial. Joseph, too, was an example of faith. Think also of the faith of the wise men. Talk about faith prompting a person to action. You see, faith always sends us on a journey where change and surprise awaits us. These men followed a star, a transcendent point of light that shined brightly and never changed. But they followed that star over rocky mountainous terrain and through treacherous waters and across barren deserts. That meant that their faith had to keep looking up. They found the newborn king by never focusing on their earthly circumstances. Faith never takes its eyes off the fixed point of God's living and written word. Faith always looks up. This past week, Kathy and I watched a special edition of Monica's Close-Up. She does a good job with these. Monica Pearson, she interviewed Dr. Stanley, pastor of First Baptist Atlanta. Charles Stanley's a fellow I greatly admire. He recently turned 80 years old, and he said in the interview that the greatest advice that he could give to anyone was obey God and leave all the consequences to Him. I like that. I think that's what Christmas is all about. Faith that follows through on God's will without worrying about the fallout. There's a scene in Dickens' classic novel, A Christmas Carol, where the ghost of Christmas past has just visited Ebenezer Scrooge. Obviously, the old miser is shaken by the experience he's had with a ghost. But when Scrooge wakes up, he tries to shake it all off. He dismisses what he had been shown. Bah, humbug. It wasn't real, he says. He isn't ready to take the message seriously. And I love the clever words that Dickens puts into the mouth of Scrooge. He says, just a bit of last night's undigested beef. There's more gravy about you than grave. Scrooge tries to write off his encounter with the ghost as a simple case of indigestion. And I'm afraid this is how some people respond to the Christmas story. Christmas is about faith. And yet how many of us take heed to this message Oh, we open our presents and we pick the fruitcake out from between our teeth. And then we mourn all the credit card bills that pour in. But do we ponder the point of it all? Do we ever get to the meat of it? Every Christmas, 
should find Christians roaring out of the season and charging into the new year with a faith on fire, with a renewed commitment to do the will of God. Our Lord Jesus and Mary and Joseph and the wise men all should inspire us to behave according to our belief. This Christmas, don't just burp on your eggnog and trip over the bows and the wrapping paper and fight the heartburn of too much turkey and dressing. For Christmas' sake, think of ways that God wants you to put your faith into action. Some things that you can do and act on your faith. Christmas is all about faith, a courageous and an adventurous and an obedient faith. Roy Hattersley is a British journalist. He's also an atheist. In fact, he's a very avid atheist. But in September 2005, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, Hattersley wrote a column for the British newspaper, The Guardian. He entitled it, Faith Does Breed Charity. Hattersley had watched the Salvation Army and other Christian organizations come to the rescue of the Gulf Coast residents, and he was impressed. He admired the Christians' selflessness and their acts of daring and caring. In his article, Hattersley, he admits that Christianity embeds a moral imperative in its followers that atheism does not. Hattersley wrote, We atheists have to accept that most believers are better human beings. Christians are the folks most willing to act in a crisis. Hattersley commented, It ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian. Yet men and women who, like me, cannot accept the mysteries and the miracles do not go out with the Salvation Army at night. He realized that folks find a courage and a caring in Christianity that they find nowhere else. Again, Hattersley was speaking of the Gulf Coast relief work when he observed, Notable by their absence were teams from rationalist societies, free thinkers clubs, and atheist associations, the sort of people who scoff at religion's intellectual absurdity. Christians are the people most likely to take the risks and make the sacrifices involved in helping others. And why might that be? Why are Christians the people who are willing to dive in and help other people out of their mess and despair? Why are we the dumpster divers? Well, I have the answer. It's because of Christmas. For we learn from Christmas that we follow a dumpster diving God. Christmas is all about courageous faith. Jesus braved a cold, cruel world to retrieve us to God. On December 24, 1989, a Romanian church was celebrating Christmas Eve by candlelight. During the service, the communist soldiers came to arrest the dissident pastor. As the soldiers approached the church, though, members started lining up outside. First 10 people deep, then 20, then 30. Church members encircled the building. Soldiers couldn't break through the human shield they formed. And it was a symbolic moment. It was one of the triggers that brought down the Romanian dictatorship. And it was inspired by the courage we find in the Christmas story. Now, Some people say that the celebration of Christmas really doesn't belong on December 25th. Ah, four days into winter. It's too cold for shepherds to be tending their flocks by night in the fields outside of Bethlehem. And neither was wintertime the season for a census. I mean, who wants to take a long trip in cold, rainy weather? 
Caesar ordered such decrees in the spring and in the fall. And it's true. Jesus was probably born in the late summer or maybe the early autumn. But that's not to say that Christmas doesn't belong on December 25th. I think its positioning on the calendar is perfect. For what better time to recall Christmas Day than one week before a New Year's Day? This coming New Year seems particularly perilous. Our country's economy is sliding off a physical cliff toward a new recession. Across the Middle East, the Arab Spring has turned into a winter nightmare. Superstorms and school massacres haunt us. All kinds of problems face us in this coming new year. And that's not to mention the personal and financial and the spiritual challenges that you and yours face. To me, this is why it's so appropriate that Christmas comes one week before New Year. It gives us seven days to ponder the brave, courageous faith of Jesus' descent into this world. And Mary's surrender to God's will. And Joseph's obedience, even with questions swirling in his head. And the wise men's trek into the unexpected. All examples of real faith. You see, for this is the faith it takes to live in a broken world. When those four embassy officials were shot in Libya, it didn't really affect us. Not enough to keep us up at night. Libya's too far away, man. It's, it's in an unstable part of the world anyway. But when the sanctity of a kindergarten classroom in Sandy Hook was violated by a mad gunman, teachers were shot, as were blonde-haired girls learning to read and playful little boys, oh my... All of a sudden, evil was not that far away at all. It kept some of us up at night. We realized we're not safe in our own backyard. In fact, the gunman looked like the kid next door. And we were all reminded that no matter how hard we try, life in a fallen world is not something that you or I can control. It takes courage to get up and face a new day. There's a quote I like. It's often attributed to Teddy Roosevelt. I've seen it attributed to Winston Churchill, even John Wooden. Perhaps all three of them said it. It's true. Success is never final. Failure is never fatal. It is courage that counts. This is what we need heading into this new year. A Christmas-style courage. We need a dumpster-diving, obedience-inspiring, Bethlehem-arriving type of bravery. A faith that does the will of God regardless. You and I need the courage that rises up in the midst of the brokenness around us and fixes what it can. I read a blog this week that stated, If we learn anything from the Christmas story, let it be courage. Christmas is a feast day for the stout of heart. It's a call not just to bake cookies and sip cider, but to be strong, to proclaim our faith more boldly, and to make real sacrifices for our relationship with God. An all-wise God will one day mend all that's broken and restore all that's fallen. But for the moment, He allows the wreckage to remain, and He expects us to have the courage to obey to rise up and obey His Word and to answer His call. He expects us to have a faith that behaves 
and that acts like it truly believes. You see, Christmas is about family. Christmas is about worship. And Christmas is about faith.